Well, in our culture, you know, people love certain movie characters so much they can't get enough of them. If you remember the early 2000s, you had the, the Superman movies and the Spider-Man, the Batman movies. Stories were told, trilogies were made, and they were hugely successful. So much so that the studios, I think, wanted to make more money off of these characters, and so later they, what's called, rebooted them. Where they just have new actors, largely the same stories, and just tell them all again and make even more money. And oftentimes you, you wonder after you see these reboots or old movies rehashed, like, did we really need this? Was this worth it? And uh, often when it comes to Hollywood, the answer is no. It's just a retelling of the same old story. But in scripture, the answer is yes. The retelling of the same story is a good thing. That's why we have four gospels in the New Testament. Now, granted, these are no mere stories. These are are truths, and they're no mere reboots. It's not like the author was just rehashing and inventing new things for his convenient purposes. No, but you have the same story, the life and the ministry of Christ Jesus, told four times from four different perspectives. And in that regard, it's it's very valuable when it comes to getting to know the Christ. Well, the Old Testament has its own example of a retelling of history. And that's found in 1st and 2nd. Chronicles. You can open your Bibles there now as you will get to it pretty soon. First, second Chronicles. I think they might be some of the most neglected books of the Old Testament, maybe next to like the minor prophets. But every now and then that gets some play, like Jonah we'll go to every now and then. But first, second Chronicles, when was the last time you just opened up your Bible and said, I want to do some reading? Let me let me go to first, second Chronicles. They're neglected books. They're very long. They begin with this very tedious genealogy. And they seem to just, you know, repeat 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st, 2nd Kings. So uh, why bother with them? That'd be a mistake because God included them in Scripture for a reason. And 1st, 2nd Chronicles are not merely a retelling of Samuel and Kings. In fact, 55% of the material in Chronicles is found nowhere else. Now, a lot of it is retold, but even then it comes with, like the gospel is a different perspective for a specific purpose. This author is highlighting different aspects of Israel's history, but it's not just history. It is once again to teach a lesson. This, this is theology. This is God's word and instruction to Israel and today to the church. And First and Second Chronicles makes its own unique contribution to the message of the Old Testament. So this evening, as we carry on our getting to know the Old Testament series, we want to discover the the unique role and place Chronicles plays in the Old Testament and see how it applies to us today. There's a lot in it, a lot to cover, and so we're going to get started. And we begin these studies with a little basic background just to initiate you to some of the the facts of these books of the Bible. Since we're we're trying to discipline ourselves to just one book per evening, this time we're we're combining 1st and 2nd Chronicles. The title in Hebrew is The Words of the Days. They just titled their books by the first words. So that's how Chronicles begins, and that's what they called it. But in the Septuagint, it was called The Things Omitted. That's, how they call, that's what they called this book, The Things Omitted, meaning the things passed over by Samuel and Kings. Originally, just one book, later divided into two when it was translated into Greek. Now, the author, who wrote this? And we don't know for sure. It's anonymous. So we cannot say for sure, but you have the stylistic similarities with Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll see in the next couple of weeks. And so some believe that a single author is behind all three of these books, treating First and Chronicles as just one book. 
And that fits with the Jewish tradition, which ascribed to all three of these books, authorship by Ezra. And that seems very possible, if not likely, given how this author had access to a large number of official records. And don't let this stumble you. You read Chronicles and all over the place, he's quoting other references, other books, books that are not in the Bible. And that's not a problem. The, the author Luke of his gospel did the same thing. He compiled records to create and produce his account of Christ's life. And God can inspire that just as he can inspire someone uh, directly writing or revealing. But Chronicles is a compilation of other works from the Torah to Samuel and Kings to genealogical records, to official documents, to historical works, the writings of other prophets, and so on. And so a scribe with access to royal archives kind of fits the bill, and, and Ezra would fit that. But again, this is not a mere compilation of, of random facts. This author is carefully selecting episodes from Israel's history, specifically the time of the monarchy, and to make a point, which we'll see shortly. Now, the date, when was this written? This might actually be one of the last books of the Old Testament written. Again, can't say for sure, but it's possible. The last event recorded is the decree of Cyrus to let the Jews go back to the land. That was 538 BC. So it's at least after that. But in chapter 3, it gives the genealogy of Zerubbabel. And that uh, it traces his grandsons. So that puts this book maybe even into the mid-400s. It could be the last book of the Old Testament canon actually written. It's possible. Now, the audience, whenever Chronicles was written, one thing is clear is that it was written to, to post-exilic Israel, meaning Israel after the exile, Israel coming back from the exile. Judah had been taken captive to Babylon because of their sin. They lived in Babylon for 70 years. But then over a period of time, they were allowed to return. Israelites started trickling back to the Holy Land, and they started rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah detail this time. Again, we'll, we'll see those in the next couple of weeks. But Chronicles was written to that same group of people, the Jews coming back to the Promised Land. The author has something he wants to say to Israel now that they're, they're being allowed to come back to the land. You can probably guess what that might be. I mean, using Israel's history, he's going to warn them not to repeat the mistakes of the past, which is why they lost the land to begin with. But also he wants to encourage them to look to the future. And this generation after the exile needed some encouragement because things were looking pretty bleak. God's promises to Israel seemed long gone and forgotten. The good old days were way behind them. But this author writes chronicles to tell them otherwise. This, is, this book is filled with a lot of hope. Unlike 1st and 2nd Kings, which is very bleak and doom and gloom, Chronicles is optimistic. In fact, let's get into the setting, just covering again, just basic background, the setting, a little bit more on the setting of Chronicles. And it's important to grasp the setting to get the book right, to make sense of it. You got to put yourself in the sandals of these people. As we reflect in Kings, first, second Kings, you see how Israel's national identity was wrapped up in the land, in the temple, in the monarchy. 
But that was all lost. They were kicked out of the land. They lost national sovereignty. The theocracy was over. The temple was obliterated. Jerusalem was essentially erased. So what's left of them now as a nation? They're living in a foreign land under foreign rule. These were dark times. But God had told them through the prophet Jeremiah that after 70 years, they would be allowed to return to this land of promise. And they'd be given another opportunity to rebuild and, and seek the Lord in the land. And God being sovereign over kings and nations, he, he made this happen. The Babylonians conquered Judah, but they themselves were conquered by the Persians. And when the Persians came to power, they actually favored the Jews. And so Cyrus, the king, decreed in 538 BC that they could return. Even gave them back the utensils from the temple and just go back, rebuild your temple. So that was the first return. It was under Zerubbabel. It's recorded in Ezra 1 through 6. If you recall, there are actually three deportations of Judah to Babylon. And you might say in a corresponding way, there were actually three returns to the land. So the first was under Zerubbabel. The second would come in 458 BC under Ezra. That's Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And the third return would come in 445 BC under Nehemiah. And that's just recorded in the book of Nehemiah. We'll get to those later. But you see that little by little, the Jews were being allowed to come back into their land. But things were way different. And you have to picture this and just appreciate this. So first off, when they got back, they were mostly confined to Jerusalem. They did not have sovereignty over the the breadth of the Holy Land. No, just a tiny little sliver they were allowed to live in. And second, they were now very minor players on the world stage. Back in the height of David and Solomon, Israel could contend with the world powers. But now they would always be just a a secondary or, or tertiary nation in the world stage. They would be weak and oppressed. And third, they had no Jewish king on the throne. They were allowed some representative rule, uh, but they still answered to the Persians and later to the Greeks and then later to the Romans. Uh, Things would never be the same. And fourth, the temple is gone. They get back and it's just an ash heap. And they did start to rebuild, but the, the second temple would be nowhere near the glory of Solomon's temple. And then fifth, Jerusalem itself was kind of like a wasteland. The walls were torn down. Buildings had been burnt down. It's kind of like returning to a war zone and they're, they're trying to rebuild. It was depressing. And that's really the impact of the setting here of, of Chronicles written to this people coming back to their land. But it's just depressing. It is difficult. It's going to be a long road ahead to, to, to get out of this. It feels like Israel's in a deep hole. There's no way out. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Like life does not seem very good for them. I mean, you might as well call it quits as a nation because it probably won't get any better than this. And in 1st, 2nd Kings, it's kind of the feeling you get. It's just a dark, depressing record of Israel's history. Israel's demise is presented as bleak. And Kings was written more as a rebuke on Israel for, for bringing this about. This was God's doing as a curse, a judgment, because they forsook their God and sought after other gods. But this is where Chronicles is a bit different. 
Because Kings was written during the exile as a rebuke on Israel largely for bringing this about. This is what happens when you forsake your God. But Chronicles is written now after the exile. They're getting back to the land. It's still nighttime, but it's like right before dawn where the sky is is getting brighter and brighter. And the author wants Israel to know that the sun will dawn on the nation again. God has not forgotten them and glory can be restored if they seek the Lord. And so Chronicles is much more optimistic about the future. This author is trying to encourage and give hope to this returning generation of Jews that they might do things differently, not repeat the sins of the past. You know, before uh, Zerubbabel, when he returned to the land, he failed to inaugurate this messianic kingdom. The kingdom had not come. And also the reforms under Ezra and Nehemiah were short-lived. But still, the chronicler is giving what's called a theology of hope by reviewing Israel's history and God's promises. He's letting them know that their present distress, it's real, but it, it can give way to a day of restoration and will come through God's promises. As we learned this morning, through, through a seed of David. And they needed to keep the hope alive. Now really kind of segue us into the purpose of First and Second Chronicles. So that, that's a little bit just kind of the facts, some basic background. But now purpose. If we can get a little more specific on on why these books were written. Now, I want you to think again, like, what does it mean to be a nation? What makes a nation? Typically, it's an ethnic people living in a specific geography with some sort of sovereignty over their land. But when nations are conquered and they lose their land and they lose their sovereignty, that typically means the end of that nation, right? What becomes of that nation? We have the ethnic people that are either killed or dispersed. So that's in history, that's just kind of the end of the nation. So you think of like the Aztecs or the Huns. And some of their DNA still exists in the population. But those nations are gone because their, their ethnicity was lost. Their land was lost. Their sovereignty is lost. And those nations are just no more. Once a nation is conquered and loses its land and sovereignty, most nations just cease to exist. But that's why Israel is so different and unique in all of world history, really, to think about that. With the exile, they became a nation without a land, without sovereignty. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, they did that to many nations. We don't remember those nations. They're all gone, but Israel's actually still here. This was an ethnic people that was lost and dispersed across the world. That's something that spells the end for most nations. And indeed, there's actually no record of the 10 northern tribes returning to the land. Many of them just did assimilate into the Assyrian Empire and really never heard of again. But up until 1948, Israel's existence in the world has has been just as a dispersed people group. But they stayed a nation. No other people group like that has survived for so long. And the fact that Israel survived with any sort of a a national or ethnic identity after this exile is remarkable. Something we can only attribute to the preserving hand of God. But like I said, this exile, when it happened, it was a major blow to their national identity. I mean, what does it mean to be a nation anymore? 
why not just call it quits? Why not just settle permanently in Babylon and assimilate, live a happy life, like move on? Why not forget all about that chapter in the promised land? Why even do you want to go back? There's nothing left there. Why not just stay and just end this experiment called Israel? And again, some Jews did that, but there was a strong remnant who realized they could never do that. Why not? Because they're not just an ethnic people group. They were an ethnic people group called by the one true God. And to abandon their identity would be to abandon their God. And this remnant realized that they just couldn't do that. that, That's akin to forsaking their God all over again. And so the real glue that held Israel together, even in a polytheistic world, was just their, their faith in this one true God. But that being said, this exile seemed to call into question Israel's relationship to the one true God. I mean, if they were this special, unique, chosen people, how could God let this happen? How how could the true God let this happen to his special little people? Isn't he strong enough to prevent this? How could they lose everything? What does this mean for the future? Well, the books of Kings and Chronicles were written in the Bible to to set this record straight. And they let us know Israel's exile was not due to God's weakness or God's unfaithfulness. God is always true to his word and promises. Rather, this exile came because the people were unfaithful. They violated God's covenant. He told them he would do this if they went astray and forsook him and, and served other gods. That's what they did time and time again. The only shock here is that God didn't take him out sooner. But as he promised, a day of reckoning would come. They served other gods. They didn't repent. They were cursed with this exile. They would lose the privilege of the land. That's exactly what happened. We saw that in our study of 1st, 2nd Kings. And again, that the main message of 1st, 2nd Kings is rebuke. Like, this is what you get. Is what happens when you forsake God and go astray. And the author of Kings really highlighted the worst parts of Israel's history to make this point. It's a more pessimistic look at Israel's history. And he wants them to never do this again. So he highlights the depths of depravity Israel and her kings sunk into that led them to the exile. You know, even the great King David and King Solomon are shown to be fallen figures. We saw that in Samuel and in Kings. The author of Kings set out to explain the exile. There's still a ray of hope, so it's not entirely pessimistic. There's plenty of hope in 1st and 2nd Kings, but it feels far away. The hope in 1st and 2nd Kings feels really distant, that maybe someday God will restore them. The hope of the the Messiah is there through the line of David. That's how 2nd Kings ends, but it's, it's still pretty dark. But again, I'm painting the contrast. This is where 1st and 2nd Chronicles is so different. There's a big contrast here, and this relates to the purpose of Chronicles in the Bible. The Chronicles is not a pessimistic look at Israel's history, but an optimistic one. But yes, Israel and Judah greatly sinned, and the author is not whitewashing their history. He's not pretending that all these bad things didn't happen. A message of rebuke is still found in Chronicles. He doesn't want Israel to forget why they lost everything. But at the same time, he's purposely trying to give them hope. And Chronicles is often referred to as a theology of hope. 
And he wants this generation coming back from the exile to be different. And for that, they need to learn the mistakes of the past, but then learn how to do things differently. What does it actually look like to live in true worship of this God, to serve and seek this God? And so for this reason, the chronicler highlights mostly the good parts of Israel's monarchy and their history. He's going to focus on the positive stories, the positive examples. You really see his purpose come out in his emphasis. For example, the chronicler, he mostly skips right over the reign of Saul, like the first king. Samuel had a lot to say about Saul, but he gets just like a little blip on the radar in Chronicles. And said the focus is on David and Solomon. They're, they're the bulk of these books. And David and Solomon are seen as ideals for the theocratic leadership of Israel. And also, think about this. The chronicler does not get into David's affair with Bathsheba. Does not get into Solomon's idolatrous worship later in life. He's not pretending these things didn't happen. He is assuming his audience knows the books of Samuel and Kings. Like they all know these things happened. He's just showing though, more positively, here's what made these two Kings great. They were great. They weren't perfect, but they were great. And in many respects, they were models of true faithful worship and righteous Kings, especially early on. And for a time, at least both of these Kings led Israel And the unified worship of Yahweh centered on his temple. And that's what Israel needs to get back to. And speaking of the temple, temple worship is a big emphasis in Chronicles. You know, that opening genealogy has a lot to say about the record of the priests and the Levites who administered temple worship. We also get all these chapters not found anywhere else showing how how David contributed to the building of the temple. He did a lot to prepare for it. Solomon then builds the temple. He leads Israel in worship. You think about all the good kings of Judah. What did they have in common? They were loyal to the temple. They sought to restore the prominence of of the worship of God in the temple. Temple is a big emphasis. Now, speaking of the good kings, here's a big note that the chronicler, by emphasis, he completely ignores all of the kings of northern Israel. Remember, if you, you read First, Second Kings, it, we'll, we'll learn about the kings of Judah in the south after the kingdom divided, and then all the kings of Israel in the north. They were all bad. The kings of Judah, more of a mixed bag. But, but the book of Kings goes through the history of both northern and southern Israel. But the chronicler being given his emphasis, just trying to to focus on the positive aspects of their history. He he doesn't go over a single king from northern Israel. They were all wicked. Not a single one of them was good or sought the Lord. There are no good examples to be found there. So he doesn't include them. He's not pretending they didn't exist. He'll mention them, but he's not going to chronicle them. They're not worth it. And when it comes to the southern kings of Judah, he really will spend most of his time focusing on, on the good ones. Their goodness is not seen in their might or wealth, but just in their faith and obedience. There were some good blips on the radar from the kings of Judah. They showed Israel true worship, true obedience. And so the chronicler wants to to elevate those examples. So what the chronicler is trying to show here is is that God has promised to regard David, to regard his temple, 
He shows God's faithfulness to the house of David and the temple in Israel's history, that the people might be reassured that God will be faithful to bring about a second David and even a second temple, that he will be faithful to his promises to restore this nation to, his, uh, to a place, that a second David will build a, a his temple in Israel and reign righteously. You know, this exile, one thing it didn't change was all of God's promises. It didn't nullify any of God's promises to this people and his promises through them for the nations. God would still bless the descendants of Abraham. He would still cause them to dwell securely in the land. He would still raise up a son of David to rule. That king would build God's temple and he would usher in a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. This is what Israel still has to expect And the chronicler knows, however, that these promises will only be fulfilled when Israel is believing. And to see the return of God's glory and Israel's glory, this people needs to seek the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They must never turn again to idols, but worship God alone in holiness. And he's writing to now show the way. This This is the positive way. This is the way of true worship. So putting it together, the purpose of first second chronicles in showing Yahweh's faithfulness to the house of David and the temple in Israel's history Israel was encouraged to hope that the son of David will come and build his temple as they're found faithful and true he's writing just give them hope in the future it's not over for Israel glory will return and and for them that means glory for the whole world and God's promises that are still alive for the son of David and his temple all right, well, a quick note on, on the outline of First Second Chronicles. Let's make our way through. We'll keep going through here, this, this you know, introduction to First Second Chronicles, from basic background to a little bit of the purpose. Now, I'm only giving you a, a high-level outline because I'm not giving you a handout. You're not going to copy much down. But, again, a simple three-part, very high-level outline to this book. It goes First Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. That's, that's the genealogies. That's where you got to, you know, buckle in and just make your way through. It's a long list of genealogies, but that's first Chronicles one through nine. And then first Chronicles, uh, chapter 10 through second Chronicles chapter nine, you get the reign of, of David and Solomon. First Chronicles 10, uh, 10 through second Chronicles nine. That's a huge chunk. And it's all about David and Solomon. They are the central thrust here. And then lastly, 2 Chronicles chapter 10 through the remainder, chapter 36, that is the reign of all of the Davidic kings. It just will chronicle the rest of the kings of Judah. It's as simple as that, you might say, as a high-level outline. What I want to do now is take you through a quick synopsis. You know, in previous books, we've almost gone chapter by chapter, just giving you a, a real you know, rundown of the flow of these books. But now we're combining 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We're not going to do that tonight. And we have covered, you might say, the flow of Israel's history in the books of Samuel and Kings. We, we know, you might say, the story, what happened to Israel. We don't really need to repeat that. But what I want to do now, take you through a quick synopsis to show you the contrast. I want to show you where Chronicles is different from Samuel and Kings, mostly Kings. Just to help you see, by way of that emphasis, what this book is about. So we'll take you through a quick tour. You can open to 1 Chronicles 1 again. We'll just be moving relatively briskly through this. But 
First nine chapters, it's the genealogy, right? A, a long list of genealogies. And Chronicles you know, probably deters a lot of readers because as they start reading it, they don't get very far. They have flashbacks to the book of Numbers and its long list of genealogies and how it put an end to their Bible reading plan. And they just kind of have PTSD or something. But look, this is not meant to be gripping narrative. That's not the point. Look, in Hebrew culture, preserving genealogies was an important part of their record. And God inspired it that they would have this record. And there's, there's significance here. This does not mean that the genealogy is without significance to the author. It comes down to emphasis. The same thing in the book of Matthew. And that's genealogy, which we'll see pretty soon. So we're going to start going through the book of Matthew uh, on Sunday mornings. But look at chapter 1. He starts off in verse 1 with Adam. He's going all the way back to Adam. He'll go from Adam, Seth, Enosh. He goes on, verse 4, he concludes Noah. Already we start, this genealogy is, is going way back to creation. Repeating the genealogy from Genesis. And it's going to the very beginning. That tells you something. And then it really gets to a crescendo in verse 27 to Abram. That is Abraham. So the first section is just a genealogy of, of all humanity funneled down through Abraham. <clears throat> now, why do you think he's doing that? Why record this? He's already reminding Israel that, that they're a chosen people from creation. That God has, their, has had their lineage marked from the beginning. Also, their own heritage goes back at that point, even some 2,000 years to Abraham, the father of the faith. And this is meant to evoke all the promises of God to them through Abraham. Those promises haven't changed. They've not gone anywhere. From their perspective, it had been 2,000 years, but they were alive and well. God was still regarding Abraham and his promises. The very fact that Israel still existed was evidence. God still regarding his promise to Abraham. Now it continues in chapter 1 and chapter 2. It gives the genealogy of Abraham. And then Israel, then David. Chapter 3, you see the descendants of, of David and the kings. And that's, that's continued significance, now evoking the promises of God for Israel through David. And of note, to raise up a descendant, one who will sit on the throne forever. And chapter 3 ends with the genealogy of Zerubbabel. He was the governor who led the first return. And he was a descendant of David. And that really brings them up to date. He kind of gives the grandsons of him, the, the last, uh, the people who are still alive. And what it's showing is that at this time when Chronicles was written, Israel did not have a son of David reigning on the throne, but the line of David was alive and well, which as we learned this morning shows that that hope was alive and well. God's promises were still alive and well, that a son of David would come and, and make things right, restore Israel. The exile did not terminate God's promises to them. Now, the rest of these genealogies trace the tribes of Israel. But again, there's a big emphasis on the tribes of Judah and Levi. Why? That's the tribe of the kings and the priests. And not only is the kingly line intact, but he's showing the priestly line is intact. That means legitimate temple worship can continue, can come back in the future. And so even in the genealogy, he's giving them these subtle notes of hope. 
Like this, this is not the end. This genealogy was not cut off. When nations are conquered, genealogies just end. But Israel's genealogy is still alive. Now you get into First uh, Chronicles 10 through the end of First Chronicles, and that's the reign of David. So the rest of First Chronicles, the rest of the, the first book, is all about David. Chapter 10 picks up with Saul, but again, it, it's so quick. Saul is essentially excluded from Chronicles. Very little attention is paid to his life. He dies in battle, and that's it. Then comes David. Let's just fast forward right through Saul to David. And with the reign of David, we immediately see this contrast with 2 Samuel. If you might recall, 2 Samuel has just one chapter on the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Remember that episode? But in Chronicles, we get four chapters of David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. David is shown in great detail that he's a man who's very concerned with the right worship of Yahweh. And also here we find a little more detail of how David is really exonerated from that mishap with uh, Uzzah. If you remember, when they were transporting the ark, it was going to fall down to the ground. And so this guy, Uzzah, he reached out, he touched it to keep it from falling And just because he touched it, God struck him dead. God's told them no no one should ever be touching the ark. And he made an example. And that's how starkly holy God is to man. But in Chronicles, we learn a little more behind the scenes. It was revealed that part of the problem there, part of the mishap is that they were transporting the ark on a cart led by oxen. God had commanded them back in the law of Moses, though, you're supposed to carry it on two poles with some Levites transporting it on their shoulders. And David, when he learns what happens, he rebukes them. And when it's time to bring the ark back again, he makes them do it the right way, according to the letter of the law. And again, Chronicles is just highlighting here that this is a king who's truly concerned with the right worship of God, according to his law. This is a king who who cares that they serve God rightly. You go to chapter 15, verse 3. It shows David's planning to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It says, David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Here's a king who who aims to lead all Israel in worship. And that phrase, by the way, all Israel, is a, a little minor theme. It occurs 35 times or more. It just emphasizes the unity of Israel. Israel is now scattered, divided, lost, but... Here's this, their archetype king. He's the one who will lead all Israel in true worship as the second son of David will. Well, after this, you get to chapter 17. That's a big one. It repeats the Davidic covenant. But you get the expanded version. God promises to raise up a son of David. He will build him a house and a kingdom forever. You know, we've talked about that a lot in Second. Uh, Samuel, we won't repeat that, but, but more so than Samuel and Kings, God's promises to David take center stage in Chronicles. The kingdom and the temple have been lost, but they still have this hope because what's not been lost is the line of David. A son of David might still come and restore them. Now go to chapter 20, verse one. This is really interesting when you compare and contrast with Samuel and Kings. 
This is a parallel with 2 Samuel 11. See if you can notice the difference, if you know 2 Samuel, if you're with us. This is 1 Chronicles 20, verse 1. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the army and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem, and Joab struck Rabbah and overthrew it. And then it goes on how David basically conquered them. You catch a difference there? Do you, do you see what's missing? Because in, in 2 Samuel 11, it just hit the pause button right there. David stayed at Jerusalem, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. And it's Bathsheba, and it goes into that whole affair. And David's huge sin, the huge stain on David's record was the Bathsheba and Uriah incident. But the chronicler doesn't mention it at all. The Bathsheba incident is conspicuously absent Now, again, it's pretty clear this is not a whitewash of David's reign. He includes some issues with David, like the census census and the pestilence. That's the next chapter. But again, he assumes his readers already know the book of Samuel. They already know David is a sinner, and he, he fell short a big way. But again, by way of emphasis, he's writing to encourage Israel to faithfulness and renewed worship. And really, apart from the Bathsheba incident, David was the model of faithfulness and true worship. And he he wants them to see all the good parts of David, for example. The chronicler wants Israel to learn from the best of the example of their first godly king, David. And so that's why in chapters 22 through 29, the rest of 1 Chronicles, you have all this material that's not covered in Samuel and Kings. And it records all that David did to prepare for the building of the temple. Did you know that? We know David would not build the temple. He wanted to, but he wouldn't do it. Solomon would build the temple, right? You know that. And so Solomon gets all the credit for this temple. It's called Solomon's temple because he actually built it. But did you know that David spent many years preparing to build the temple? And Chronicles shows how much David did to get Solomon ready. We don't have time, but you can read chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 and more. More importantly, though, like why eight chapters on the preparation for building the temple? And then the record, there's some more genealogies here of those who served at the temple. Why include this? We have genealogies of the Levites and the musicians and the gatekeepers. Why is this here? Well, he's just showing just a high view of the temple worship of Yahweh. Not that God lived in this temple, but he had placed his name there. And he, he sanctioned this temple. He directed Israel to worship him there. And God connected his promise of a coming king to this place. The key to interpretation comes in chapter 28. You know, David's speech to the people. And Solomon about about the future temple that Solomon would build. And he reiterates God's promises to him that, I'll just summarize for the sake of time, that it would be a son of David to build this temple. And through a son of David, a forever kingdom will come. That promise is guaranteed. When will it come though? Well, you can be sure it's going to come through a people who are, are believing and obeying. From a king and a people who believe the Lord and obey the Lord. That's when you can expect these promises to come. And although we just find in this record, 
David is presented as a man after God's own heart. He's a model of a righteous king who they're now looking for, a son of David who will come even greater than David, but also an example of faith. We have one who's more concerned with building God's kingdom than his own. Israel is meant to just long and and try and reproduce the days of the faith of David. So that finishes 1 Chronicles. But again, this is just one book originally, so it moves right into 2 Chronicles. And so 2 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9. Now this is all about Solomon's reign. So again, it really slows down for David and then for Solomon. And some attention is paid to Solomon's wisdom, Solomon's wealth, his prosperity, his peace. But again, more attention is paid to Solomon's building of the temple. He constructs it. He furnishes it. He dedicates it. And then God's glory comes and and fills the temple. That God has accepted this house. He's put his name there. Again, you're seeing by way of emphasis how uh, high regard the chronicler has for the temple worship of Yahweh. Now in these nine chapters, no mention is made of Solomon's later downfall. His foreign marriages, his multiplication of wives, his turn to worship other gods, how he fell in his later years. And that led to the division of the kingdom. He records the division of the kingdom, but he leaves out all of Solomon's sins that that led to it. But again, by way of emphasis and showing the early faithfulness of Solomon, he's highlighting God's initial fulfillment to his promises. Remember, God said a son of David would build the temple. And Solomon, that the first son of David, went on to, to literally build that temple. And as Solomon sought the Lord earnestly early on, God gave Israel and the son of David. He gave him a real taste of the kingdom blessings he had in store for them. In Solomon's early reign, where he led the people in true worship, they had unprecedented peace, security from their enemies, prosperity, growth, worship, the nations were included as well. I mean, they, they got a taste in Solomon's early reign of just how God would bless this people and bring blessing to the nations as they sought him under the unified worship of God. You know, if only Solomon had served God with a perfectly pure heart, the kingdom would have come. But as we know, that wasn't Solomon. It wasn't his sons. But the chronicler, though, I think in Solomon's reign, he's just reminding Israel what's in store for them, what, what can be in store for them again as they seek the Lord, as the greater son of David comes. There is still glory in, the, in Israel's future. They got a taste of it under Solomon, but they'll get uh, the real deal under the greater Solomon, the, the, the greater son of David. Now, lastly, though, Second Chronicles chapters 10 through 36, the rest of Second Chronicles, it goes through now, all the remaining kings of Judah. It's going to leave out the kings of Israel because there's just no good examples there. But it will focus on on the memory uh, of the the kings of Judah. When it comes to the kings of Judah, they're not all good. And he for sure includes all the evil kings and he shows they're evil. And there's a rebuke there, much like in the book of Kings. But even still, he's going to spend more time, more emphasis on the few good kings in Judah. He's going to pay attention to their positive reforms. This is the the optimistic look. He's telling Israel, this is what you should do now. You're back in the land. Do this. 
Remember all those good times, the good examples? That's what you need to do. And so Second Chronicles will go on to capture what some of these kings did right. Then, of course, centers on the fact that they remembered God, they obeyed God, they worshiped God, they regarded his temple, and so forth. 17 of these 27 chapters on the kings of Judah are devoted to the positive record of the good kings. You get way more info here than in Second Kings. You have Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. The good kings, we learn a lot about them here in Second Chronicles. The chronicler shows that these good kings always submitted themselves to God's rule. And then they express that through loyal worship of God at his temple. One thing they all hold in common was worship reform and temple reform. The bad kings took Israel away from the worship of God. They worshiped idols on the high places. Some of the the bad kings like Manasseh, they took idols and they brought them into the temple and they turned the temple into a a state-sanctioned idol worship center. I mean, they desecrated the temple. But these good kings all have in common that they they had a a zeal for the Lord and they put away these foreign gods and idols and they recommissioned, sometimes physically refurbished the temple and consecrated it once again to a Yahweh worship center. Yahweh only, we're going to worship here. Basic theme though is that God blesses those who humbly seek him and worship him as he sees fit. And he opposes those who don't. In this section, we trace the kings of Judah. We find these obedient kings were rewarded. They were blessed with prosperity, with physical deliverance, security from their enemies, victory. But those who turned away from God saw military defeat, illness, decline. It's a basic theme like that God blesses those who, who have faith in him and obey him, and he curses those who don't. And those disobedient kings led the people to ruin. And that is why Judah fell. And so the chronicler no doubt traces why Judah fell and was exiled. Thankfully, there's still a ray of hope. Second Chronicles ends, much like Second Kings, with the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. It's a much shorter record though. I mean, they already know all the bad news. But the Chronicles, or Chronicles ends with, with, with some good news. I mean, despite all that's happened, Israel can be restored. Go to chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles. It's to the very end. And God, God promised them uh, if they forsook him and served other gods, they would lose the land. The temple would be destroyed. They'd be exiled. And they, that's what they did. And so what do you know? God's promise came true. He warned them. But his word was true. But the chronicler wants Israel to know that God's made other promises. He's promised that if they repent, if they seek him with their whole heart, if they turn back to them, to him, he will forgive. He'll restore. He can bring them back to the land. He can uh, redeem them. That word is true as well. And those promises are starting to come true. And so the book ends in verses 22 and 23 of the last chapter. This is not in Second Kings. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
So that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Learn more about that decree next time in the book of Isaiah. But that's, that's phenomenal. That's profound when you think about it. First off, in world history, what nation lets a captive conquered people just go back? And by the way, I'm going to pay for you to rebuild your temple. Here's a bunch of supplies and men. When has that ever happened, for one? And two, note the connection, though. This, is, this didn't just happen. This is God's doing in fulfillment of his word through Jeremiah. This is part of God's promises. And, and God's promises for Israel are not over. They've been desolated and laid low because of their own doing. But as they seek the Lord again, they can be restored. They're, they're in the process of being restored. They've come back to the land when Chronicles is, is being written. He wants them to know, here's how to not go back down the bad path. Here's how to seek the Lord. And here's the, the positive example of, of uh, how blessing comes. Chronicles ends with the house of God being laid waste by invaders. The treasures are hauled off to Babylon. The theocracy is gone. Israel is now under the direct control of Gentile kings. They're uh, they're left with just one little shred of hope. That's that the Davidic dynasty has survived the exile. And God will one day restore his theocracy through this this perfect king who will build a, a perfect temple. So when you think about Chronicles possibly being one of the the last books written to Israel in their canon, it's meant to give them just a hope, hope that their present distress won't last forever if they just turn back to God, if they seek God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. If they just give him all of their hearts, he will restore them. In fact, that'll give us a good place to end. Let's finish with the little last section a special focus on true worship, which is also really our application. A special focus on, on true worship. This, this stands out in the book of First and Second Chronicles. You know, when you read the New Testament and you see the religious leaders of Israel, and they're all characterized by false worship. You have leaders like the Pharisees. And they go to great lengths to conform to the outward forms of worship, but their hearts are far from God. And so Christ himself always rebukes them as false worshipers. They're doing all the right things outwardly, so to speak, but their hearts are far from God. Jesus rebukes them. Makes you wonder, like, didn't they know better? Didn't they know God wanted their hearts? How did they get so lost here? And the thing is, they did know better. It's not like Jesus was telling them something new when he told them, like, you know, God actually wants your heart. That's, you know, the outward forms matter, but it has to come from the heart. Otherwise, they mean nothing. Jesus was not being novel. He was telling them what the Old Testament said. They should have known this. God always made clear that true worship has to come from the heart. Chronicles really emphasizes that. And I bet, I bet you didn't know that. This book is worth your time, if only to show you this, this subtle emphasis throughout on true heart worship. That's what God wants. And it's a big contrast with Samuel and Kings. It's just Chronicler was, was emphasizing this. Look, Chronicles is full 
of the outward forms of worship that God prescribed for theocratic Israel. God told Israel as a theocracy how to worship him around a temple. So he wanted his people to express their reverence to him in many forms. Drink offerings, sacrifices, burnt offerings, incense, bowing down, giving thanks, washing hands, prayers, fasting, cleansing, dancing, feasts, festivals, repentance. There's a long list of outward forms of worship prescribed. But what made these forms worship? The Chronicles makes clear that these forms of worship are given meaning by the heart. If they come from a pure heart that actually loves this God, then they're transformed into worship. If that heart is not present and you're just doing them, God hates them. They are not worship at all. They are to your shame. The book of Isaiah has a lot to say about that, rebuking Israel for just doing all the outward forms, but their hearts were far from God. Israel would fall into that trap time and time again. But look, they should have known better. All they had to do was read Chronicles and see this emphasis. And so just to finish real quick here, let me show you this emphasis. Just a few key verses here, but there's a lot. Go back to 1 Chronicles 28 and uh, verse 9. This is David preparing to build the temple. And he addresses the people and he addresses his son Solomon. He says this to Solomon, 28 verse 9. He says, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? How would Solomon succeed? How would he be blessed? Well, all you have to do, just seek this Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's really the equivalent of that verse. Seek him in true worship. Don't forsake him. That's all you have to do. You don't have to jump through hoops. He just wants your heart. In worship. It does not matter how many bulls you sacrifice. God wants one thing. It's your whole heart. You given over as the, the sacrifice. That was David's commission to Solomon. That's chapter 28 verse 9. Look at 29 verse 9. Just one chapter ahead. <clears throat> this is David telling the people to bring offerings for the temple. Basically gathering all the resources needed. This was a monumental building project. And David didn't build the temple, but he wanted to set Solomon up for success. So he calls the people to just bring free will offerings, bring the resources, bring the precious stones, the materials, bring what you got if you want to. How did the people respond? 29 verse 9 says, then the people rejoiced. The the chapter goes on to say they brought a ton of stuff. They brought too much. And then verse 9 says the people rejoiced because... They had offered so willingly for they made their offering to the Lord with, there's that phrase again, a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. There's this testimony of joy because the people, how do they respond to this opportunity to, to give? Giving is a form of worship. You might give today to the church. We call that a form of worship, but it's only worship if it's coming from 
a whole heart, a heart that loves the Lord. Otherwise, God doesn't want your money, and neither do we. It means nothing. It's not worship. That's the only reason we do it, a form of worship. This was a testimony of all Israel worshiping from the heart is what God wanted. Now look down at verses 17 through 19. Same chapter. It's a few more here. This is a prayer. David, he sees this response of the people. He launches into a prayer. Verse 17. He says, since I know, oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy, I've seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people. And direct their heart to you. And verse 19. Give to my son Solomon. A perfect heart. To keep your commandments. Your testimonies. And your statutes. And to do them all. And to build the temple. For which I have made provision. That's a very uh, high view of God's sovereignty prayer. He understands. God must change the heart. First, you have a prayer that God would preserve this moment. David sees the people respond in overwhelming faith. They're just willingly and freely giving all they have for this temple. And he's moved. He prays that God would preserve the intention of their heart. Basically, God would keep this faith alive and going. That, that God would sovereignly direct their hearts to him and preserve them. And David knows God ultimately must do it. This is God's work. It's what Christ said to Nicodemus. You know, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. And that's something you can't do. God has to do that. He must give you a heart to believe. And he told the Jews, like, I'm not telling you anything new. You you should know this. And likewise, David knows this. God must give the people this right heart. He prays that for Solomon. He prays that God would sovereignly give Solomon a pure heart. A perfect heart to keep the commandments. This meaningful obedience to Lord only comes from a renewed heart. God will, uh, which something only God can give. And that's why David prays. But th- these are profound verses you probably didn't even know existed that they read more like the New Testament. Like I'd expect that in one of Paul's letters, an epistle, like a media epistle. But even in the Old Testament, God was making known the path to him was one of faith alone from a, a pure heart that seeks him. Let's just do two more real quick. We're already out of time. But Second Chronicles 16, 9, a, a quick one where the prophet is talking to King Asa. And King Asa failed to rely on God with all of his heart. And that's why he did not gain victory in this battle. His heart was divided, not fully the Lord's. And Second Chronicles 16, 9, the prophet says, For the eyes of the Lord... Move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. The prophet's rebuking Asa because he did not seek the Lord in all of his heart. But listen, a verse in the Old Testament, God searches the hearts. He knows what's going on on the inside. He might be someone who's going through all the outward forms of worship. But is it really coming from a heart that seeks the Lord, a pure heart that seeks the Lord? God's eyes, no. He sees right through you. 
to your heart. He knows if that thing you do, your, your presence even here tonight, if it's mere ritual, obligation, duty, or worship, he knows and he will act accordingly. Learn from Asa. Asa did not give God all of his heart and he did not win that battle. Uh, we know though, God looks to those who've given him his heart. That's who he regards. Just to finish, Second Chronicles 31, 20 through 21. There's actually a lot of examples. We can't do any more. But I would challenge you to, to read these two big, long books. But you will find some gems in here you probably never knew existed in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 31, verses 20 through 21. This is the great example of Hezekiah, who's like a second David in many respects. Just a summary. Verse 20. It says, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. It's a little tagline on Hezekiah's life. He was a great king of reform. He did so much, and the chronicle lets us know he did it with all of his heart. There's that, that phrase, heart, again, the, the recurring motif, the one who seeks the Lord with all of his heart, and that's why he prospered. God was with him. God blesses him. We know that's not just materially, like God promises you riches if you seek him with your heart, but just God will care for you. He will be your God. He will bless you and, uh, and uh, re- redeem you. And that's enough of our own application. You know, just learn well. We've gone through Samuel and through Kings and through Chronicles. We've seen this, the big history of Israel. If you learn anything from the tragic history of Israel, learn this. This is what the Lord wants. It, there's only one way you can find him and please him, be reconciled to him. And, and the Old Testament makes that clear. Just a true heart of faith. If you seek him with all of your heart, he'll let you find him. It's the mystery of, of faith and regeneration. That It's God's work. It's God's unilateral call. But the one who just in humility and mercy cries out to God he will reveal himself to that person. That's a promise he makes. So seek God with all of your heart today. Seek him through the son of David who's already come. We we can look back in Christ Jesus, the one who fulfilled all these promises. Yield your entire heart to him. That's what produces true worship. And that heart of faith in God through his son Christ, that's what transforms everything you do, all of our outward forms to worship as well. That's what God wants of us. He wants the sacrifice of, of just you, your bodies, the living and holy sacrifice up there on the altar because you love this God and your heart is given to him for all he's done for you through his son Christ. So may we learn, even from the history of Israel, and to give God all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength in worship. Well, that'll do it for First, Second Chronicles. It's kind of a whirlwind, but the left, like I said this morning, you got a Bible. You can read it yourself and learn even more. But hopefully this uh, gets you started. Let's finish in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our Lord God, we, we thank you for the, the testimony of First, Second Chronicles and, that, and how rich it is. Even as we just scratch the surface, we see some impactful lessons and truths. All of, your, uh, all of the books of the Bible find their place. You inspired them all for a reason, a purpose to instruct Israel and even now the church as we look back on their example. These scriptures were inspired and made profitable for our teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, Lord. And we learn how we can be made righteous, even in Chronicles. 
just by faith in you and in that this coming son, as we seek you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we turn from our sins, you will let us find you. You will reveal yourself to us and bless us, redeem us, and restore us. We long for that, Lord. We thank you for already sending the Christ to, to guarantee and to procure our salvation. And so may we uh, follow him and just yield him our lives now as we learn from Israel and their mistakes. May we not repeat them, but just give Christ all of our heart and producing uh, everything we do as true worship. Sanctify us as your people, even through this study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.